Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled 15 Words of Hope by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. I want to do a 
a bit of a series over the next few weeks, I'm not sure how long, dealing with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, broadly speaking, to bring before you some of the compelling words and conversations of our Lord Jesus. Uh, I think you can't improve on Him as the subject. No way. So, His person, His work, His Word, in some very unique settings is going to be our pattern for the next number of weeks. And to begin that, I want to draw your attention to Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. Part of this will be very familiar to you. But let me read those verses. Matthew 11:25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Our Lord has something to say to you this morning. Essentially, it starts in verse 28 with the invitation, Come to me, come to me. Those are his words that have been ringing off the pages of Scripture since it was written. Words of tender compassion, words of invitation, words of priceless value. This is his gracious invitation. And this is an expression of his mission. In Luke 19.10, he said, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save the lost. That's His mission. He's come to seek and save the lost. That has always been God's mission. You can go back into the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Listen to the words from heaven in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. 
Then down in verse 6 of the same chapter, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That is a series of invitations by God to come to him. God is by nature a Savior. Paul says he's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. The mission of God in the world is a salvation mission. It's not about social change. It's about eternal life. And the Messiah came to fulfill that mission to provide the necessary sacrifice to make the mission possible by which sinners could be forgiven. But his mission was the same as his father's, to call people to come to him. And as you heard in reading that passage, he describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. That's, that's the heart of the evangelist Jesus. Gentle and humble in heart. If you go over one chapter to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 18, you read a text that basically comes from Isaiah 42. So this is an Old Testament text. It's an Old Testament evangelistic text repeated in the New Testament to remind us again that the purpose of God in the Old Testament was the same as it is in the New Testament. That is to invite sinners to come to Him for salvation. Isaiah 42, and in this case being quoted in Matthew 12, verse 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, this is the Father referring to the Son, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice or righteousness or judgment to the nations. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice or righteousness to victory, and in his name the nations will hope. That is a marvelous Old Testament passage. And what it says is that God wants to save the Gentiles, and that he's going to do it. And that begins in verse 18 and it ends in verse 21 with the salvation of the nations. That is God's purpose in the world. Salvation will come to the world. It will not come by a violent revolution. He's not going to cry out in the streets. This isn't going to be some kind of revolution. And it's not going to come by force. Verse 20, a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He's not going to take advantage of those who are weak. Salvation will come. 
but it will come with tender compassion. And our Lord here in Matthew 12:18 says He is essentially the fulfillment of that text in Isaiah. Come to seek and save the lost. His message was always the same. Come to Me. In John 6.35, come to Me and never again hunger. In John 7.37, come to Me and never again thirst. In John 8.12, come to Me and never again walk in darkness. In John 11.25, come to Me and never die, but come to Me. And in our passage, it is come to Me and I will give you rest. Come and find rest. Now, we understand a dictionary definition of rest. It can mean to cease from work. It can mean to be free from fear or worry. It can refer to a settled or fixed condition, something at rest. It can also have reference to confidence that you rest your case. It can also mean to depend on, to lean on, all of those things. It's a word that has far-reaching meaning even in our temporal English language. But what does it mean in God's vocabulary? What is He talking about here? He's not really talking about the things that we assume are rest. It's a synonym for salvation. It's a synonym for salvation. It is the rest that comes to the soul that has been forgiven and given eternal life. That is why he calls it rest for your souls. And we saw that, didn't we, in the text that I read earlier from Hebrews chapter 4. The rest that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is salvation rest. And he says that there were people in the time of Moses and there were people in the time of Joshua who were offered salvation rest, pictured by entering into the promised land, pictured by responding to God in obedience. And the nation Israel's history, they just kept turning it down. They kept on in their disobedience. They kept on in their evil And uh, Hebrews 4 says they didn't enter into rest. So the writer of Hebrews is reminding every generation since he wrote that, that the rest of God, the salvation of God, is still available for all who will come in faith and receive it. And God's rest, this salvation rest, can't come through a leader, not even Moses, Not even Joshua. It can only come through Jesus Christ. And it's the rest that is received by faith. It's not a rest that you receive by works. It's a rest that you are given by faith. So we want you to think this morning of Salvation as rest, and I'll explain more about that as we go. In Revelation 14 and verse 13, we read, 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Blessed are the dead, for they rest. We're talking about a rest that's after you've left this veil of tears, this world. It's eternal rest. It's salvation. Now with that in general, let's go back to verse 25, because this, this passage is so remarkable. I don't want you to miss a thing. Verse 25 says, At that time, or at that occasion, Jesus said, What do you mean at that time? Where, where are we in Jesus' life and ministry? That, that's a time stamp that we need to understand. It has vital significance to the interpretation of this text. So we're in Galilee. Jesus has completed His Galilean ministry. The mighty deeds have been done. Many, many, many miracles. Undeniable public miracles. Evidence, clear evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, their long-awaited King, and that He is God incarnate, because only God could do what He did and say what He said. So we are at the end of the Galilee ministry. In chapter 10, He commissioned His apostles to proclaim the message of the kingdom. In chapters 11 and 12, we start to pick up the response. What is their response to Jesus? And what is their response in Galilee to the apostles and the 70? That's essentially what you find in chapters 11 and 12. And if you want to know what the response was, all you need to do is look at verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was their assessment. That was the assessment and the attitude of the Jews of Galilee toward the Son of God after He had completed His miraculous ministry there. The attitude in Galilee was really a taste of the full rejection that he would soon receive from the entire nation. Initial popularity had turned to fierce opposition. Galilee rejected him. And to see the severity of that rejection, go to verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. After all those miracles, all those words from heaven, they didn't repent. As a result of that, the cities of Galilee receive a curse. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You're worse than the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon. Nevertheless, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, where many of his miracles were done, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Sodom was destroyed in a fiery divine fury for the aggressive sin of homosexuality. Sodom was the worst imaginable kind of place. Nobody in Chorazin, Bethsaida, or Capernaum would advocate homosexuality. And yet their judgment is going to be worse, not because of the sins they committed, but because of the Savior they rejected. So what is the verdict on Jesus in Galilee? He's a gluttonous man. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was their verdict. And a curse was pronounced on them. Amazingly, it is in this context that we come to verse 25. And it just seems like it's completely out of sequence. Because at that time, at the time when he has just pronounced judgment on Galilee and on the cities, he said, I praise you, Father. Now he's speaking openly, he's speaking publicly, he starts this evangelistic effort with prayer, open public prayer. It's open public affirmation of His oneness with the eternal God. I praise You, Father. How is that possible? We would understand if He said, Father, what went wrong? How did this happen? Was there some failure in strategy? Did, did, you, did you not take into consideration that I needed some divine support in this uh, effort? How, how did it turn out this way? He doesn't say that. He said, I praise you, Father. I praise you. Why? Because... You are Lord of heaven and earth. Nothing happens that isn't under your control. You're the creator of the universe, heaven and earth. Not only are you the creator of all that exists, but you are the possessor of all that exists. Deuteronomy 10.14, Behold, 
to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. He not only made it, He owns it. He possesses it. And Jesus knows that the Father hides things from the wise and intelligent, verse 25, and has revealed them to infants. In other words, the only possible way for anyone to respond to the message of Jesus would be if the Father revealed it to that person. I thought about titling this message, Jesus Was a Calvinist. <laughs> the Son of God knows that the Father hides and the Father reveals. Yes, God is by nature a Savior. He's the Savior of all men, especially those who believe, First Timothy 4.10. But He chooses who will be saved. And He has chosen to pass by the wise and intelligent and give His divine revelation, His saving revelation, to those who would be considered the lowlifes, the infants, nepioi, tiny babies. This is remarkable. But this is the foundation of all evangelism. The knowledge that what is going to happen is dependent upon the sovereign call of God. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. A few verses here that you're familiar with. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who are in the category of the perishing find the message of the cross and the gospel foolishness. Those who are in the category of the saved find it the power of God. So it really, your response really depends on what group you're in. If you're in the perishing, it's foolishness. If you're in the being saved group, it's the power of God. Man on his own wisdom, verse 19, can't access salvation truth. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God chose to save some and not others. Who did He choose? Verse 26. Consider your calling. That is a saving call, an effectual call a call that results in actual salvation. You're calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. It's not the elite. It's not the intellectuals. It's not the, the brilliant people. 
Not many mighty, that means they're powerful, not many noble, high-born. God, on the other hand, has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, the nobodies, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. God has chosen those whom society would think are on the lowest level. They're not particularly wise or brilliant. They're not the rich, the mighty, the powerful. It's just the opposite. And God has done that so that no man may boast before God. Verse 31 says, if you're going to boast, you have to boast only in the Lord. Now you can go back to the text in Matthew. And you'll see the significance of the end of verse 25. Father, you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. These things, what does that mean? Things concerning the king and the kingdom. Truth concerning his messiahship, his lordship, his work as savior. These are not available to unconverted people. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man understands not the things of God. They are spiritually discerned, and he is spiritually dead. But on the other hand, while human wisdom doesn't access salvation truth, God reveals it, and he has chosen, he's made the choice, to choose not the wise and the intelligent. Essentially, those two terms define a class of people. And, and I believe there's some sarcasm in that. Those who think they can trust in themselves and their own wisdom and their own ability to reason, they can come to the truth of their human minds he bypasses those people. This would be the Jewish people. This would be the rabbis and the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees who were too wise and too intelligent and too elevated for the foolishness of the cross of Christ. The Lord makes a distinction and he has chosen the lowly. Listen to John chapter 12, verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs, so many miracles before them, yet they were not believing in him. That's what we've been saying. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because Isaiah said, 
He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, so they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, be converted, and I heal them. Amazing. God makes a choice. And God chooses, uh, chose to save the lowly. Our Lord understood that. He had no problem with that. He had no issue with God being God, God being sovereign. It's not condemning intellectual ability. It's not condemning anything but really intellectual pride. It's not intelligence that shuts you out of the kingdom. It's pride in that intelligence. It's not intelligence that gets you into the kingdom. It's humility. Intelligence itself is neither a way in or a barrier. But pride in your intelligence, in your wisdom, will keep you out because humility is the way in. Listen to Psalm 138.6. Though the Lord be high, yet has he respect to the lowly, but the proud he knows afar off. He keeps his distance, and he chooses to save the humble. It's really a stunning thing for the lips of our Lord to affirm God's sovereign choice. And consistently through Scripture, the ones that He chooses appear as the meek and the humble. Think of the Beatitudes. Who enters the kingdom? Blessed are the meek, poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Spiritually, they're those who recognize their dependency, recognize their helplessness, their emptiness, their nothingness, deeply aware that they have nothing to commend them to God, no resources for life, but in, in, in a plea, they can only cry out for mercy. The difference between the wise and the infants is not so much intellect as the product of that intellect. Those who think they're smart enough to access divine truth on their own and those who know they're not. But God has made a choice and He's chosen mostly humble people who have nothing to commend themselves. Psalm 34, 2, The humble shall hear and be glad. Proverbs 22, 4, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. James 4, 6, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Listen to Isaiah 57, 15. 
For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit to give rest, salvation rest, to the spirit of the humble and to give rest to the heart of the contrite. You see an illustration of that in Luke 18 where the Pharisee and the publican in the story that Jesus said, come to pray. And the Pharisee says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I do all these religious duties. And the publican is pounding on his chest saying, I have nothing to commend myself. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the man who went home justified. Humility is required. Matthew 18, you can't even enter the kingdom unless you come as a little child, totally dependent. Isaiah 66, 2, God says, I look to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit who trembles at my word. It's the lowly. Notice the next verse. Verse 26. This is amazing. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. That is a very short verse, as you see. Very short sentence. Intended to answer a very big question. Why did God decide to choose some and not others? Why did God choose the lowly rather than the lofty? Why is salvation from God based on His sovereign electing purpose? Here's our Lord's answer. This way was well-pleasing in your sight. That's all you get. That's it. Because he wanted to do it that way. He did it that way. You might have expected a long answer, a paragraph, or a few pages. Trying to explain the doctrine of election and why God has done what he has done. But our Lord understood that it was this way because that's the way God was pleased to do it. And God is God. That's so deep and so profound. And if there's one question that comes every time you have a question and answer, it is the question of why did God choose some people and not other people? And is that fair? And is that right? And are we sure that's the plan? Yes, Jesus said. It's the way He does it, and He does it that way because it pleased Him to do it. That's enough. He is sovereign. And then Jesus says, and I want you to know, I'm in on it. Verse 27, I'm in on it. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. We know each other intimately as members of the Trinity. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. What he's saying is there's we're in perfect agreement. And at the end of verse 27, he says, no one knows the Father 
except the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. The Father reveals to whom He will because that's well-pleasing to Him. And I am in perfect agreement with that, and I reveal the truth to those whom I will. He has all authority. There's no diminishing in Christ compared to the Father. The Father has handed over to me all things. All things. Matthew 28:18. All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. In chapter 4, we saw that He was given authority over Satan. In chapter 8, authority over demons. Chapter 9, authority over illness. Chapter 8, authority over the elements. Chapter 9, again, authority over body and soul, life and death. Chapter 10, authority over the disciples. Chapter 9, again, authority to save. Chapter 7, authority to judge. All authority He possesses equal to the Father. All things, earth, heaven, hell, men, angels, devils, time, death, eternity, all things, salvation, damnation, grace, judgment, life and death, all things, truth, righteousness, glory, peace, joy, comfort, refreshing, hope, deliverance from sin, victory over temptation, overcoming the world, communion with God, the love of God, the life of God, and even eternal rest. They all come from Christ who operates in perfect harmony with the Father. This is the plan. In other words, the knowledge of God's Son is perfect knowledge of the Father's plan. And His will harmonizes perfectly. Luther, Martin Luther said, Here the bottom falls out of all merit. All powers and abilities of reason or the free will men dream of. And it all counts nothing before God. Christ must give everything. Everything. No other way can a poor sinner know salvation. Salvation, then, is a meeting of a humble, dependent, lowly, helpless sinner Exposed to the revelation of God, not merely externally, but internally, by the gracious, sovereign will of the God who has chosen him, so that he sees the truth and embraces the truth. Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, verse 37. But in verse 40, he also said, whoever comes, I'll receive And I I want you to put those two together because verse 28 looks like it must be a mistake. After what we've just read in verses 25 to 27, how can Jesus say, come to me all? How can that be there? All who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. From the divine side, it's all of God. From from our side, it's all who come. You ought to be glad that you can't harmonize that. 
Because then you'd be God and we'd be in lots of trouble. Amazing. In the midst of such absolute statements about salvation being by the revelation of God to certain people, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. What what do you mean weary? It implies toil. The weary search for the truth. The crushing load of guilt. A badgering conscience. Fruitlessly trying to be righteous. Right. Trying to earn your salvation with some religious ceremony. That's hard work. That's a toil that never pays a dividend. So if you're sick of making effort to earn salvation, Jesus says, come to me. Or if you're heavy laden, what does that mean? It implies that somebody has loaded on you a massive burden of laws and traditions and ceremonies that overpowers you. And it's so hard to carry. As Matthew 23, 4, our Lord said, this is what the Jewish leaders do. They pile burdens on you and they don't move a finger to help you carry the load. Peter put it this way. He declared, this is a yoke which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear, Acts 15. If you're sick of carrying the weight of formal works, righteousness, self-achievement religion, if you're just sick of guilt, emptiness, lies, come to me. The good news is you don't have to figure out what's going on in the eternal decree. You just need to come. If you're dissatisfied with where you are, if you don't have the answer and you know it, if you're, you're tired of trying to be a better person, if you're tired of trying to live up to religious expectations, moral expectations, If you're overpowered by the burden of sin, come to me. Come to me. Is that simple enough? Come to me. If you're out of personal resources, if you are desperate and willing to turn from yourself and your sin to God, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. This is really repentance. You're turning from sin. The humble heart sees the futility of self-effort, sees the weight of sin and the oppressive burden and anxiety of religion, and in complete exhaustion, collapsing under the load, cries, hungering and thirsting for grace and mercy, publican, pounding, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
You don't need to worry about the divine part of it. You've been given an invitation. This is personal. And this is from Jesus. And this is why He came. When you get to that point of humble exhaustion, come to me, He said. What do you mean, come to me? Well, that's faith. That's, that's faith. Come to me. Because you believe that I can give you the water of life and the bread of life and life itself. Come to me because you believe that I can give you what you lack, the truth and righteousness and forgiveness. Come to me because you now know, you now know that we're not saved by works, but by grace. Come to me because there's nowhere else to come to. There's no salvation in any other. So take a humble heart, exhausted with the effort to find His way to truth and salvation, touched by sovereign grace in which she comes to comprehend the truth of the gospel, eagerly turns from sin and comes to Christ, declares Christ as Savior and Lord. Total commitment to Him. Is that enough? Well, it is. But there's one more thing that has to be understood. Verse 29. After you have come to me with all your weariness and heavy laden burdens, you exchange those for my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's a command. Take my yoke. You know, I think Jesus probably made a lot of yokes when he was a carpenter. In Palestine, yokes were made out of wood. The ox were brought and measurements were made. The yoke was roughed out. The ox was brought back and it was finished so that it perfectly fitted the ox or the team of oxen. What is a yoke? Well, the Jews used this phrase. The yoke means submission. So what you're saying in this salvation is that I am submitting everything to you. Everything. In a way that can actually be described as wearing a yoke. In some Jewish circles, that was a common phrase. To take a yoke meant to be one of the followers of a certain teacher. And the Lord is saying, let me be your teacher. See it there? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Mate taste, be my disciple. That's why the good words of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission are so strong on the issue of submission and obedience. You remember those words. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. There's repentance, there's faith, and there's submission. The submission doesn't save you. The submission is part of the willingness It's the transformation that then begins to produce 
the obedience. Well, this is just another yoke. Yes, but notice what he said. You're going to like my yoke, for I am gentle and humble in heart. How beautiful is that? It won't be like the yoke you've been wearing. I'm gentle and humble in heart. He will not oppress you. First John 5.3 says his commandments are not burdensome. They are joyous. In fact, we obey Him because we love Him. Didn't He say that? If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Unlike the yoke of the Pharisees, the yoke of Jesus fit. It didn't rub wrong. It didn't chafe. The yoke of the law, the yoke of works, human effort, the heavy, grinding, galling yoke of large unbearable burden carried in the flesh that leads to despair, frustration, and anxiety. Jesus offers a yoke that leads to rest. All your burdens are gone. One person said, my yoke has become my song. We do that, right? We've been singing all morning. And we've been singing about complete devotion to God and to Christ. And you sang with joy, did you not? We don't function under a heavy burden of the sinner's yoke. This is a very light yoke. Verse 30, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Humble submission to Christ makes life light. So a humble heart broken over the despairs of life and the weight of sin is touched by the truth and sovereign grace. The heart opens, repents of sin, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to Him, acknowledges Him as Savior and Lord, submits His life. And what is the result of all that? The end of verse 28. I will give you what? Rest. The end of verse 29. You will find rest for your souls. I can't think of anything better than that. Soul rest is wonderful, isn't it? that little statement at the end of verse 29, you will find rest for your souls, comes from Jeremiah 6.16, just to remind you that God offered the same rest in the Old Testament, made possible through Christ. Soul rest, eternal rest, Heavenly rest. That's what Jesus offers. It's personal with Him. And it's for anyone who comes to me. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that in Your mercy and grace You will open the eyes
of people today that you will cause them to see, open their ears, cause them to hear, open their hearts, cause them to repent, believe, and submit, to run to you for rest, to give up the weariness of sin and the weariness of false religion for the rest that comes from Christ. Those of us who know you understand every day, every waking moment, how compassionate you are, O God, how tender, how kind, how merciful. We know you come down to care for us and to extend sympathy to us because you showed it when you were here in this world. You suffered the things that we suffer so that you might be a sympathetic high priest, one that we can come to and find a throne of grace, not of law, and know that we can receive grace in time of need. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory to wear your yoke. It is easy. The burden is light because you are in us by your Holy Spirit empowering us. We have your word to enlighten us. We have your people to minister to us. We have all the wealth of heaven poured out on our behalf. And you are a perfect, loving, compassionate, gracious and merciful Lord and Savior. And we rejoice to serve you and shall always, one day in perfection. But until then... We thank you for the yoke that is easy and the burden that is light as you essentially carry them for us. Open hearts even this day, we pray for your glory. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to Use website website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. 
If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Archaeology. What's it for? This is Ken Ham, a missionary to our evolutionized culture and even the church. This week we're looking at archaeology. Is it a friend or foe of the Bible? Well, spoiler alert, it's a friend. Let's keep three things in mind while we think about this. One, God's Word stands as an authority over archaeology. God's Word is infallible and God-breathed, but archaeology is a fallible human tool. So, trust God over man every time. And two, archaeology isn't a replacement for what we know from the Bible, but it can provide helpful, unknown details. This can enhance our understanding of the biblical text. And three, archaeological discoveries can help us defend the Bible's truth. That'll be tomorrow. There's so much more to discover when you visit us on our website at AnswersRadio.com or by touring our Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. Go to AnswersRadio.com. I think one of the most poignant words for Jesus is the word advocate. The Bible calls him our advocate for a good reason. It's like, imagine there's this, there's this courtroom up in heaven, and every time our enemy, the devil, throws an accusation at us or about us, Jesus steps forward and he defends us, he advocates for us before the Father. It's also good to remember that word advocate when we go before the Father in prayer. Because when you pray, you know, it's, sometimes it's a little like a lawyer presenting his case in court. That lawyer takes time to think through his request. He would never approach the bench unprepared, right? Well, that's how it should be when I am approaching God about a very important issue that needs prayer. God is so delighted when we arrive at his throne truly prepared for prayer. There is a place now for quick prayers, you know, short prayers, but when it comes to serious requests, really thinking through a matter before praying shows the Lord how much importance you attach to it. So today, thank God that Jesus is your advocate, and be prepared in prayer. And hey, why don't you share your prayer request below, because we at Johnny and Friends sure would love to pray for you. God bless you, and thanks for listening. Archaeology, what's it for? This is Ken Ham, a missionary to our evolutionized culture and even the church. 
This week we're looking at archaeology. Is it a friend or foe of the Bible? Well, spoiler alert, it's a friend. Let's keep three things in mind while we think about this. One, God's Word stands as an authority over archaeology. God's Word is infallible and God breathes, but archaeology is a fallible human tool. So trust God over man every time. And two, archaeology isn't a replacement for what we know from the Bible, but it can provide helpful unknown details. This can enhance our understanding of the biblical text. And three, archaeological discoveries can help us defend the Bible's truth. That'll be tomorrow. There's so much more to discover when you visit us on our website at AnswersRadio.com or by touring our Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. Go to AnswersRadio.com.
How do you keep going when you're hurting? How do you live with pain? Well, someone once said, just do the next thing. Like, don't try to wrap your mind around a long season or a, or a lifetime of terrible pain. Just tackle the next hour, the next night, the next morning. Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for one day. So if pain has got you down, and I know that feeling, join me in doing the next thing. Get out of bed. Get off the couch. Get out of the house. Do the laundry. Wash the dishes. Whatever. Revelation chapter 21 says that soon there'll be no more pain, tears, or darkness. So press on as best you can and cast yourself, throw yourself into the arms of Jesus. You can do no more, and you certainly can't risk doing less. The Bible was right. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Who are the Ammonites? Well, they're one of the many ites mentioned in the Bible. Well, who were these people? For a time, secular archaeologists didn't believe they ever existed. After all, while they were mentioned in Scripture, the Ammonites didn't seem to appear anywhere else. So, of course, the Bible must have just made them up, they declared. Well, archaeologists eventually discovered an inscription that appears to be for an Ammonite king. They even found the remains of an Ammonite palace. The Bible was right. The Ammonites existed. The Bible's a book of history, and it's authored by the one outside of history, and he is right every time. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free this year, so bring the whole family. Plan your trip by going to AnswersRadio.com.
God's Word is trustworthy. This is Ken Ham, author of a devotional commentary on Genesis, Creation to Babel. The Bible mentions a group of people called the Moabites, descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. But did these people actually exist? Oh yes, they definitely did. The Bible records their existence, and the Bible always is true. So we shouldn't be surprised when archaeologists discovered inscriptions from Moabite kings, including one that even mentions by name a king of Israel who's recorded in the Bible. It also records other places from the Old Testament. Such findings in archaeology should remind us that God's Word can be trusted. It's a book of history. Its people really did live, and the places it mentions really did exist. God's Word is trustworthy. Discover why when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Because of what you do, but simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same, immutable, Never change, never change. When I think 
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of this great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge I am free. Forever this grace it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. Never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never the Bible, right or wrong? This is Ken Ham, author of the book on today's culture wars called Divided Nation. Today we're looking at one more ite from the Old Testament, and this time it's the Edomites, Esau's descendants. Now the Bible tells us that kings reigned in Edom before any kings in Israel. But is this true? Well, some archeologists didn't think so. They thought of Edom as just a simple tribal society. But what happened? Well, you might be able to guess by this point in our series. Archaeologists discovered evidence for a massive copper mining operation in Edom. Now, this would have taken lots of technological know-how. Edom was not a simple society. In other words, yet again, archaeology confirmed the Bible. Get answers when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or the rest of the series when you visit our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com. Just a good old-fashioned Christmas miracle that a black hole wasn't created when Russell Brand and Ben Shapiro sat down to discuss religion. If these two men fail in their current endeavors, I'm telling you, they could be auctioneers for a living. (laughs) Exhausting, but that is beside the point. The question isn't how fast do they talk. But is what they say about religion true? Both of these men, while being mostly social and political commentators, they do engage in religious discussions. We're about to react to one. Let's see what we can learn, perhaps from, but probably more about Ben Shapiro and Russell Brand. Ben's up first. One of the... I think most honest ways to read the Bible is as a document that was given to a particular set of people at a particular time, yep. meaning that you have to look at what it's attempting to transform. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ben. You got half of that right. Biblical hermeneutics starts with what did the original author intend to say to the original audience? If we come up with a different interpretation, then we have it wrong because that book, that letter, that gospel, it was aimed at that original audience. However, 
the Bible wasn't written for the sake of societal transformation per se. The Bible is written that we might know God and enjoy the God who defines himself as, yep, holy, righteous, just, good, patient, merciful, and ultimately, with that little equator sign, which is a B verb, God is love. The Bible is written that we might know him and enjoy him forever. The Bible isn't written so that societies can behave like Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. Well, let's continue with Ben. Meaning if you look at the slavery in the society surrounding, it's a much more liberalized version of slavery that's in the Bible, and therefore a step toward the abolition of slavery, which is exactly how it's been read by you know, every abolitionist preacher in the, in the 19th century. Yeah, I don't know for sure what he's saying, but it sounded a bit like a trajectory hermeneutics. The Bible, it kind of addressed this issue, and it appears to be getting more sophisticated, which means that when it closed with the book of Revelation, the trajectory continues. Even though we don't have divine instruction, we continue to imagine God must have been moving in that direction. That's a trajectory hermeneutic. Um, for my money, it ain't the way to read the Bible. And so the Bible says that if you want to say, then we take an awl and we put it through your ear and we give you essentially an ear piercing. Okay, so it's, it's punishment. The idea is that you should have gone free. There's something wrong with you if you decide to stay in, in bondage. No, it was actually a physical contract. When the individual said, yes, I am with you for life, how did the world, how did those two individuals know that that deal had been cut with a physical symbol, which incidentally is not uncommon for covenants in the Old Testament and in Middle Eastern culture? By the way, we still have remnants of those physical signs of a covenant. It's called your wedding ring. You put on a physical symbol to let the world know that you are in a till death, do you part agreement. Yeah. What Jesus says is that you are, a, you are a human being with the capacity for great good and the capacity for great evil, right? You have literally yeah. Yeah. the Hara and the Yitzhah Hatov. You have a desire for good and you have a desire for evil, and these two things are battling in you literally at all times. And what your job is to do is, regardless of what you believe, you do the thing. The thing that is in front of you is the thing that you do, right? So you have this arcane set of rules, and this arcane set of rules is made to reify the presence of God in your life. And you I mean, what? He's wearing a yarmulke, and he's calling his holy book an arcane set of rules. That's a bit mysterious. So like, even if you don't recognize that's what it's doing, by you doing these things over and over, you're cultivating virtue through action. So it's, it's like you reach God by doing the thing, whereas I think that Christianity almost comes at it backwards. And through ceremony. Uh, uh, it, it's not backwards, though. The Bible has the word heart in it page after page. 600 times it's used in the Old Testament alone. God is interested not merely in the external outworkings of the heart. He's actually interested in the inner man. That's something that we heard Dennis Prager try to propose, that, hey, for Jewish people, it's just about what we do. It's not about what we think. The problem is the Bible. As a man speaks, so he is. What comes out of the mouth is found in the heart. So the Bible, not just Christianity, but the Bible is big on the inner man. Let's see what Ben has in store for us next. You know, I think Christianity comes at it from the other way, and there's a reward in it, and there's a risk in it. There's a reward in it. Christianity says you believe the thing, therefore you do the thing. Judaism says you do the thing, therefore you believe the thing. 
Wow. Right. Did you need take the prescription and you will experience God? Right. Christianity, experience God, experience Christ and because you're doing now. That. Then you'll do the good thing. Okay, that is definitely different. That sounds more like Judaism is cognitive behavioral therapy. Just do it, repeat it, and then it becomes a pattern, it becomes a habit, and that becomes what you are. And while there is certainly some truth in that, the more you practice a certain behavior, the more likely you are to instinctively do that behavior. Christianity says, mm-mm-mm-mm, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is the inner man that motivates the external behavior. And this wouldn't be an issue for Ben or for me, frankly. Bible, we're not so insistent on the desire of God to see the inner man change, not just external behavior. In a, the, the way that I've started to think about, you know, you know I, I'm going back to what is the ultimate purpose of human life. Yeah. You know, the, the way that I like to think about it, and I think that because I, because I think it's true, because I'm always right, of course. Um, but is it, but is, he is a talk show. If you go to a cemetery and you look at the headstones, that's the purpose of human life. Every headstone says the same thing. Beloved father, beloved brother, beloved mother, rabbi, priest, right? Particular roles, teacher, right? Things that, that, other, that you did, roles that you filled. For other people. You know what it doesn't say? How you felt about yourself. Uh, yeah, okay. But what is the chief end of man that doesn't answer it? Is it my job description? Is it how many children I bore? Or is it something more transcendent? This is why all of the confessions agree the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a far more transcendent purpose. What Ben is describing is pretty earthbound and, frankly, not very uh, purposeful. But now we fast forward, and when I say fast forward, that means Russell Brand's going to talk, and he's even faster. And, and and I feel that my optimism, you know, as opposed to that your um, uh, declared pessimism, is that if I do my best as a spiritual man, it's going to make the world better. Well, that's sure. But that ultimately is not the chief end of man. Furthermore, the Bible indicates both New and Old Testament. Nobody does good. No, not one. Yes, a pagan can leave the world a better place than that which he found when he entered the world. But ultimately, what does that have to do with God? Now, this conversation, it went on longer, clearly, and maybe, possibly, there might have been more clarity but I have to confess what I heard with all due respect to two very intelligent men, individuals who might be smart politically. They might even be able to study history and regurgitate it well, but they don't have something that a Christian has. If you're a Christian, you have something that these two men do not, the mind of Christ. A born-again believer has the mind of Christ. These two fellows fascinating. They are interesting to listen to, no doubt. They can be educational. And yet, because they lack the mind of Christ, they are going to be swinging and missing more times than they're going to even hit a single. What is the moral to this story? If you listen to these two guys, make sure you have your mind of Christ on, because when they speak about religious, social, and moral issues, um, they're coming at it from a totally different place, and it's probably, probably not going to be right. This goes.
Are you good enough to go to heaven? Let's see. Have you lied, stolen, blasphemed, or looked with lust, which God sees as adultery? If you have, then you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer at heart. And if you are guilty, you will end up in hell. But God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you and defeat death. You broke God's law, but Jesus paid your fine. God can now legally dismiss your case. Repent, trust in Jesus, and God will give you everlasting life. NeedGod.com Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make all things? For His glory. How can you glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's Word. God's Word. God's Word. Is there more than one God? No, there is only one God. And how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Who are the three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Why did God send Jesus into the world? To save his people from their sins. What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins? He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. From the grave. From the grave. Jesus do after he rose from the grave? He ascended into heaven. Where is Jesus now? He is seated at his father's right hand. And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age? He's going to come back and judge the world. What must a person do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And how is a person saved? By God's grace alone. And what is grace? God's kindness to the undeserving.
icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they're God, they are praising. The difference is cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. are never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sort. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go Go.
every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in him, we'll have eternal life. Now, when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, for all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. In the story of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up to please. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. If you notice when we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display, and it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero in his name is Jesus. Da-da-da-da, da 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 da
That's all I got for Trippy Call Radio. This is Melissa Cantrella. Join us next time Sunday. And hear the Yancey and Friends with the VI Billy. And bye for now. The VI.